John 1 and verse 19. We're going to read verses 19 to 42, but we're really just going to look at a few of these verses today. But this will give us the context. John 1 verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day when he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two that heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that it will have its effect in our lives. Would you do the work that only you can do now through the preaching of your word, that you would cause our hearts to hear you, to be convicted, to be changed, to be transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. So, it's Advent. And Advent, as I've mentioned, is a time both of celebration and preparation. Each year we have this special time that we, of course, remember back, but we also prepare. We prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. We focus, we, we remember Christ year-round. We proclaim Christ year-round, but this time we remember in a unique way, and specifically His coming, that He came in human flesh and entered our world that he came for a reason. As we have looked through the book of Colossians the past two months, the theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. And so we have been looking at the person and work of Christ. And if you've noticed or not, 
it doesn't matter. But each sermon title is one of the names or titles of Christ. So if you look back, you'll see Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Redeemer. Uh, each, each sermon title has a name or title of Christ. And so I thought we would continue to do that through the Advent season, looking at the person and work of Christ um, by his names, by his titles. And so we're starting today with Behold the Lamb of God. And before I begin, I just want to commend to you, if you have not um, used Advent readings in the past, uh, want to encourage you to consider. Uh, we, have, we were supposed to have more, but there were back orders and things that weren't, I guess, somebody bought more than, <laughs> than there were available. And so what we have is what we have. Um, but uh, there are a number of Advent readings that are, you probably have some, there are a number that are available online that are daily readings that can help you focus, you and your family uh, focus on the coming of Christ. And so I want to commend those to you. There's uh, Paul Tripp's new one that just came out, is on the table, and that's one that's worthy of checking out. Music is another way that we can uh, prepare our hearts, and you probably have your favorite Christmas music. Uh, one of the albums that has become one of my favorites, it's, it's new in the sense it's only about 20 years old, but um, it's, uh, it's called Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, it's by an artist named Andrew Peterson. And it is a telling of the coming of Christ. But for me, the reason I appreciate this and I commend it to you is it's, it's, a, it's almost a retelling. It's a, a freshness. It's, you know, you, remember, you, you learn Christmas songs and, and sometimes you forget what the words mean because you know them so well. We can do this with hymns or any song, really. And so having a fresh voice, a new song, come into our lives at times will cause us to, to uh, you know, kind of rattle us a little bit and consider what... The Advent is all about. And so I would commend uh, Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God to you uh, to listen. Uh, his pastor, uh, PCA Church up in Nashville, Russ Ramsey, wrote a companion Advent reader. And I thought I would begin this morning by reading from that. Uh, it's titled Behold the Lamb of God, as you might imagine, has the same artwork on the cover. But to help us as we prepare and as we look at John 1, listen to this Advent reading. The Messiah was coming. The very fact that so many people considered the Messiah's coming more of a fairy tale than a future event was in itself a cause for repentance. It wasn't just that God had promised to do it. It was that the reason He promised to do it was like an intimate promise between lovers. God's promised Messiah was a merciful gift of love to a people who needed both mercy and love. He would come to them in all their pain brokenness and struggle, and make everything new. And they were desperate for this, and the proof of their desperation was perhaps most evident in the fact that they couldn't bring themselves to live as though this promise was real. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was something magnetic about John, something in the way he suspended those he attracted between the poles of preparation and perdition until they understood that without repentance, there they would hover not necessarily feeling lost perhaps, but not assured that they were found either. Hope began to rise in the hearts of the hopeless. Even in the call to repent, they heard the promise that if they confessed their sins, admitted their doubts, acknowledged how their hearts had become cynical and jaded, God would hear them. God would hear them. People came from all over to the Jordan to step into that water with John the baptizer. They confessed their failures, their lust, their greed, their pride. But why? Who was he? Israel's religious leaders had no answer, so they sent priests to investigate. Did this man think he was the Messiah? 
Or Elijah? John was clear in his answer. He was neither Elijah nor the Messiah. So the priests asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John told them, I baptize with water because there is a man, one who stands among you, and the strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. Though you do not know him, he lives among us even now, and he is the Messiah. Should they have known him? Or if nothing else, should they have not been surprised at John's rebuke? These were the priests of Israel, experts in the law and the lore of God's chosen people. Israel was a nation with a story, a well-rehearsed narrative. These priests were sworn to preserve and pass down. John himself was a part of that tale, and so were they. And yet, like so many of their countrymen, they had begun to forget the story of God's promises to them. This story, this story of Christ's coming was unfolding before their eyes. Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist gave Christ this title. We don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, It's not in the Old Testament, the Lamb of God. We see the image of the Lamb and, and so forth, but this is unique to John the Baptist. And so there are three things I want us to see about this title that he gives Christ. And the first is that it was prophetic and revelatory. It was prophetic and revelatory. John the Baptist was a prophet. I don't know how you think, but I'll tell you how I think and why this is an issue. Sometimes when it comes to the prophets, I think that's all Old Testament, right? You know, they were, you know, that's where all the prophetic books are, and we think of prophecy as being something that's just in the Old Testament. Uh, but it's not. It's something that we see in the New Testament as well. And you may remember in our study in Acts earlier this year, we saw examples of that. Uh, Judas and Silas in Acts 15, who were themselves prophets, Luke writes, And then in Acts 21, you remember Agabus, who was a prophet, came down from Jerusalem and he bound Paul's hands with his own belt and said, this is what's going to happen to him, and he prophesied that. And really, when we look at at what prophecy is, it's really the mouthpiece of God. It's God's word being revealed. He's using human instruments to reveal it. And so all of the New Testament writers fall in that category because 2 Peter 1 tells us, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was a prophet. But he was not only a prophet, but he was the prophet that Isaiah prophesied about, that Isaiah foretold. And Matthew describes this in Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist came with a prophetic voice. He was a mouthpiece for God. He was coming to prepare the way, but also to point to the Messiah. And that's exactly what we saw when we read that account in John 1. He said, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. Israel had been waiting for the Messiah for a long time. They were longing for the one who would crush the head of the serpent Although, if you had taken a survey on the street, I don't know that they would have articulated it that way. You see, over time, uh, their desire for a Messiah had morphed to meet their own felt needs than it had been what Scripture actually said the Messiah would look like. They were looking for a political or a military uh, deliverer, someone who would save them from Roman occupation. 
In particular, they were looking for the prophet. And you notice that several times they asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? And what they're referring to there is the prophet that Moses promised about. Again, we saw this in Acts. In Stephen's sermon in particular, he said, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And they were hopeful for that prophet. But again, they had turned that prophet into someone who would look like their own but what they wanted as a deliverer, someone who would get Rome out of the way. And you have to understand, this area of Palestine and the Jews had been under occupation before Rome. It it had been ongoing for years and years. They knew military oppression. So John the Baptist is now on the scene, calling people to repentance and announcing that the Messiah is actually here, present among you. There had been this 400 years in between Malachi, what we consider the end uh, the intertestamental period, sometimes called the silent years. But I think if we, if we hear that, the silent years, we might be tempted to think that God was somehow absent, that he wasn't at work, that he, he, had, he kind of took a vacation and nothing really happened during those 400 years, and that would be a misunderstanding. Um, God is always at work. He has a plan of redemption that he is at work and carrying out. Uh, But there were these 400 years when we don't have any scriptural books, biblical books that were written. But a lot of things happened. And what God was doing during these 400 years was setting the stage for the Messiah. Consider these things. Palestine, as I mentioned, had been ruled first by Persia at the end of Malachi. We see them under uh, occupation then. Uh, It then went through the hands of Greece and Egypt and Syria before Rome came in. So they had known this occupation. And now Rome was the ruler. But as a result, Rome brought relative peace and stability. They also brought an incredible highway system. And we saw that as well in the book of Acts, didn't we? How that highway system was the mechanism through which the gospel went throughout the known world. God had set the stage for that to happen. It was during this time that the reclaiming of the temple occurred by the Maccabees. Uh, who were trying to move out those who had come in and, and um, turned the temple into something it wasn't to be. These zealots, in a sense, had come in. And that is uh, the event that occurred for, uh, well, Jews celebrate Hanukkah today, occurred during that time. New parties arose in Jewish rule. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribe all emerged, scribes all emerged during this time, as well as new institutions, including the Sanhedrin and the synagogue. Now, all of those things that I just mentioned played key roles in the life and ministry of Christ. Those things didn't exist 400 years before and came into existence. But imagine what it was like for the people of Israel to have not had that prophetic voice for so long. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist is on the scene and he is speaking and fulfilling the very words of of Isaiah. I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So he's not only preparing the way, but he's also proclaiming who Jesus is. He is, in verse 34, this is the Son of God. He says this is the Messiah in the text as well. There is no doubt from John the Baptist's claims alone about who Jesus is. And the leaders, the priests that had come, had to take this report back that this is the Messiah. John is the one who told Andrew, if you picked up on this, Andrew was John the Baptist's disciple first. And when Jesus came by and he said, behold the lamb, Andrew and the other disciple went after him. And then Andrew goes and tells his brother Peter, hey, we found the Messiah. 
And so John the Baptist had been used to reveal to these men who the Messiah was, who, what Jesus' identity really was. And this is what is happening then when he announces, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As I mentioned before, the, the title, the Lamb of God, is not seen in the Old Testament. In fact, it's not seen in the New Testament except in John's uh, writings, in his gospel that we're looking at today as well as in Revelation. But no doubt his hearers understood what he was getting at. They knew what a lamb was for. A lamb was for sacrifice. We see the lamb at Passover. The lamb was given to the Jewish people when they were in Egypt to sacrifice, to paint the blood on the doorway so that the angel of death would pass over and not slay the firstborn. And we see this in Isaiah 53 and the, the great prophecy of the Messiah to come, that he would be as a lamb. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the idea of a sacrificial lamb made perfect sense when he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that connected with his hearers but not for the Messiah. That's not what they were looking for. They weren't looking for a Messiah, even though it had been... We look back, of course, we have that luxury, don't we? We look back and we see in the Old Testament, they say, oh, how, how could they have missed it? How could they have not understood? But let's not pat ourselves on the back, because we do the same thing. We do the same thing with Christ when we turn uh, what He has done for us into doing something that meets our felt needs rather than what He has said it will do. In a sense, John is saying to them, look, here is the lamb that God sent. He's not just going to die to pay for the sins of the Jews. He's going to die for people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And this is something that would have blown the Jewish people's minds away. The role of Jesus as Messiah was prophesied in both of these respects. But here, John the Baptist is making it especially clear. The Messiah is going to suffer and die. He's going to suffer and die as a sacrificial lamb. And the Messiah is going to save the Jews. But not just the Jews, he's also going to save the Gentiles. He is dying for people from every nation and tribe and tongue. So first and foremost, the title is revelatory about Jesus, specifically why he has come and what he will do. The title also points to his humility and particularly to the glory of his humility. Jesus did not come in glory. The King of kings and Lord of lords was born in Bethlehem, small among Judah, little Bethlehem, that unknown town, the city of David. He went as a refugee to Egypt, came back to Nazareth where he grew up. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He was a man of no reputation. Isaiah spoke of this in, in chapter 53, verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus came in humility. And even though Isaiah had spoken this clearly, the Israelites were not looking for a humble Messiah. But through his work, his humility becomes his glory because of what he accomplished. He is going to suffer and to die. And he's not going to die justly. He's going to die at the hands of sinners who kill him unfairly and in an undeserved way. And even though they would do this, they would take his own life. We see that it's not they who had power over him, 
but He who willingly laid His life down for the very people who would take it. We've seen in Colossians how Jesus is the Creator and the Sustainer, how He holds all things together by the Word of His power. And John the Baptist is now saying, He is going to lay His life down as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. So John's title for Jesus, Lamb of God, reveals not only how He would come, but what He came to do. And that is, His title points to His atoning work. That's the third point. That's the whole idea of a lamb. A lamb is for sacrifice. Jesus came to die for my sins. That's what Christmas is all about. If we get our minds off of the the notion of our sin, if we forget what our sin is, Christmas becomes just another holiday, just another thing to endure, just another thing to, to add lights to, but to have little or no substance. The reason Jesus came was to die for my sins, for your sins. It was the plan and purpose from the beginning to carry out this plan of redemption. And all of this is being put on display, that even the angels long to look into it, the matchless glory of the grace of God. Atonement was something the Jews understood. They understood from Leviticus 17, without blood there is no remission of sins. Yet they had come to believe that sin wasn't their problem, it was you know, other people. It was Rome, it was the military, it was the fact that they weren't free. And again, let's not pat ourselves on the back because we do the same thing. We treat so many other things as our real problem when our hearts are the problem. That's what we're responsible to. That was one thing that my mom drilled into us is four four of us siblings born within five years of each other, there was, you know, there were days there wasn't harmony, let's just say that. And what she would say to us more than anything else that I can remember her saying to us is, you're not responsible for so-and-so. In other words, you're the problem, not them. Now, they may have been the problem too, and she dealt with them as well. But as far as I was concerned, I had to deal with me. And that's our issue. Our sin is our problem. And the Israelites were missing them, missing this, rather. So you can understand then why John's message of repentance was paving the way for the Messiah to draw people's attention to your sin is the problem. You need a Savior for your sin, not for Roman occupation, not for political deliverance. It's as if John is saying, look, God has sent this lamb to take away sin, to deal with and make you right with Him, because that's your real problem, not your political situation. John's work expressed the notion that the Passover lamb and all the other sacrifices throughout the year pointed to this lamb. None of those other lambs accomplished anything. Their blood didn't accomplish anything. This was the lamb who would accomplish everything. The Messiah had come to save. And so as we launch into this season of Advent, we begin here with the purpose of His coming. Jesus came to save, to save us from our sins. He came to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. He is God's lamb perfect, without blemish, spotless, to come to take away the sins of the world. And if we don't start here, that this is our real problem, as I mentioned, Christmas just becomes trite. You've got to understand your sin is the problem. And if you have never come to faith in Christ, I want to call you to faith today to know that you can be forgiven your sins, that you don't have to carry the weight of sin on your shoulders, the guilt and the shame. 
Christ came to take away the sin of the world. That's the real problem. That's what has to be dealt with. But that's what moves us then to worship and thankfulness. We look back on the Lamb who did come in in, in remembering Him, but we also look now to the Lamb who is interceding before us. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding before us, at work on our behalf, laboring for us, standing in the gap, speaking to you and to me who are believers in Christ. I carry the load, not you. I have paid for your sin, not you. I take care of it all, not you. As far as the east is from the west, so your sins have been removed by the Lamb of God. Consider the words of Martin Luther speaking about this verse. He writes, Therefore a Christian must cling simply to this verse and let no one rob him of it. For there is no other comfort either in heaven or on earth to fortify us against all attacks and temptations, especially in the agony of death. That is, that our sins have been forgiven. And so we look back, we look at the present, and then we also look forward. And John captures this so well in the book of Revelation, that the Lamb will come again and will consummate. He will finish, He will close the gap that we're now in, and we will worship Him in spirit and truth. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for coming. For coming in humility. For coming to seek and save the lost. To come to serve and to give Your life as a ransom for many. To come to lay down as the perfect sacrificial Lamb for our sins. We thank You. We thank You for doing that, but not only only for saving us from our sins, but Lord, now that You are interceding for us, You are laboring for us, You are making a a way in between this gap that we're in. Thank You, Lord, for interceding on our behalf. I pray that every person here would know that reality today. For the unbeliever here, that they would be drawn to Christ in saving faith to realize the freedom that is theirs in Him. And Lord, for every believer today to know the freedom that is the freedom from burdens, the freedom from guilt, the freedom from shame, and the weight that is on them. That it is You that have borne those things. And it is You that intercede now on our behalf. Would You lift our hearts in praise and thankfulness and gratefulness to You today that we would worship You, not just in this building, but as we go out celebrating the coming of our King, the one who came to suffer and die for our sins. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.